Sorry. So the reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Well, hi, everybody. My name is Dan, as you've just heard. Um, I am married to the beautiful Vicky, and we have two wonderful daughters called Grace and Lily. As John just said, this is our, well, it's our penultimate Sunday. We'll be here next week for the commissioning, but it's lovely to be able to actually be here. Um, lovely to be able to share this, this time with you and to be able to share something um, of what we can find in the Bible with you. So I've got the privilege of being able to talk to you all today about love. Now, I was going to make a joke about how I'm a love expert, but the problem is it's so unbelievable that it didn't even stand up as a joke. Um, it, <laughs> um, just to kind of highlight this, when Vicky and I got together um, for the first month of our relationship, I thought I was in this deep, committed relationship, and Vicky thought I had friend-zoned her because apparently I'd sent her completely the wrong signals on a date. So I am completely gormless when it comes to romantic love. But thankfully, I have a very positive influence in my life. I happen to know an actual love expert. You see, when I married Vicky, I didn't know I was going to inherit a father-in-law who is a bona fide love expert. <laughs> Jeff Touchings is full of wonderful wisdom and advice when it comes to love. He is a love guru. <laughs> So this, this is just three of the pieces of advice uh, that he's given to me over the years. Um, I want to caveat, at least one of them was in a joke. Not all of them, though. If you're mid-argument and you're losing, raise your voice. The loudest argument, the loudest voice, always wins. Stop buying such thoughtful gifts. You make me look bad. 
and find a hobby or a sport that she hates. It's a great way to create some space. Besides, absence makes the, love, the heart grow fonder. <laughs> Wonderful advice from Jeff Touchings. He'll be outside later if you need some advice. Wendy will be there offering pastoral support if you listen to his advice. <laughs> before I get stuck into this talk, before I get stuck into looking at love in the Bible, I actually really want to just summarize the point I'm going to make. I'm going to spend about 20, 25 minutes talking about this, bringing different things together from the Bible, but the point itself is incredibly simple. God loves you. It is that simple. He loves you deeply, and he wants a real relationship with you. We are born in a state where we are separated by God because of sin, and God chases us down to show us how much he loves us. The problem is we're not really worthy of God's love. In fact, I don't know how many of you guys may have felt this, but sometimes we feel unworthy of human love. So how on earth will we feel worthy of God's? Well, regardless of how worthy we feel, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us so that we could be called daughters and sons of God. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that we could have that relationship that we don't have when we're born. And if that's the only thing you take from this talk this afternoon, the only thing, then brilliant, because that's the point. But bear with me, because I'm going to spend a little bit of time trying to unpack this in a bit more detail. Hopefully there'll be some interesting nuggets along the way. But the, the depths of, depth of God's love is infinite. So I could be standing up here talking about this for the rest of my life. I won't, because I'll bore you senseless. But I will talk about it for the next 25 to 30 minutes. Now, it's quite weird talking about love, because as human beings, no matter what our background, no matter what our age, no matter our culture, human beings, we are obsessed with love. Netflix, that streaming giant, other streaming giants are available, have categories dedicated to love, to romance and romantic comedies. In fact, Netflix's biggest category is romance and romantic comedies. Now, if streaming isn't your thing, and you, maybe you're more into classical literature, then some of the biggest pieces of classical literature we have are focused on love. Romeo and Juliet. Or if that's too modern for you, we have Homer's poem, the epic Odyssey, which is centered around the Trojan War. You've probably heard about the Trojan horse. And if you were um, around um, over the age of 15, about 10 years ago, you would have seen the film Troy, which is awful. <laughs> um, but the story is there. I think you've got Brad Pitt's Achilles, you've got Eric Banner, and I think even Orlando Bloom's in there. It just shows the age of it. But the whole story of the Odyssey, the whole story of this film Troy, is centered around the love life of a lady called Helen of Troy. She's known as having the face that launched a thousand ships. The story is two men fighting for the love of Helen. Now, maybe classical literature isn't your thing. Maybe you're more into kind of current pop music. So just for you guys, um, this week I went and I looked at what the top 10 charts are. That's probably the first time I've done that since I was about 11. 
Um, and I wonder if you can guess how many of the songs in the top 10 had some link to love. Just throw a hand up, one or two people, if you've got any ideas. All of them, exactly. Thank you very much. Every single song in the top 10 has some link to love, be it positive or negative. Now, Abraham Maslow was an American psychologist in the 20th century. And if you've done any form of psychology or sociology or law or business or marketing studies, you will probably have heard of, if not him, his work. Because Maslow is credited of creating this thing called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It's like a pyramid. It looks probably a bit more impressive than my hand like this. Um, but it's broken into sections. At the bottom of the pyramid, you've got a section um, which has the most important things for human need. And at the top, the smaller section is for the things that are still needed by humans, but not as much. So its foundation is the basic things like breathing, sleeping, eating. Directly above that, you have the need for safety, the need for those things below it to not go away. And then above that, the very first human characteristic that isn't survival is love. That's the love of a friend, a family member, or romantic love. Now, whether or not you agree with Maslow's hierarchy, it is completely obvious that to us humans, love is massive. Well, the problem with us human beings is, like me, we are awful at love. We may be the most romantic person in the world, we may be the most sacrificial person, but we are awful at love. We are pretty bad at loving other people. We are pretty bad at being loved by other people. And sometimes we're even pretty bad at loving ourselves. Well, I mentioned about the top 10 songs at the minute all being about love in some way. And I, I thought, well, I wonder how many of these have got some negative connotation to love. And it's every single one. Even the most lovey, romantic-y song on that list, which I think was a Little Mix song, talks about cheating. It talks about pain that comes with love. Now, I'm going to hypothetically ask, have you heard the phrase, love hurts? I'm going to ask that hypothetically because, of course, you have. Everybody has heard the phrase, love hurts. And that's really, really sad. But why do we all know that love hurts? Why do we all know that phrase? And it's, I'd wager, because we've all experienced the pain that comes with love in some way in our lives. But why am I telling you all this? Why is there this chubby Welsh guy at the front standing in front of the church talking to us about little mixed songs and classical literature? Well, it's because over all of human existence, this obsession with love is obvious. And it points towards something significant. And that is that the quest for human love is endless and it's futile. Because human love does not fulfill everything that we need. We are missing something. We are born separated from God, and in that we are missing something. I don't know how many of you have heard people talk about needing to just fill that void, fill the gap, finding something to fill the gap. Well, that's what we're missing, is that relationship and the love of God. We can't repair 
our gap, our void, our hole on our, on our own. People try. They try filling it with love, like we said. People try filling it with food, with alcohol, with drugs, with whatever. There's so many things that we try to fill that gap, but we cannot do it on our own. Well, if you've been following along on our series, um, you will have heard plenty of stories about people sometimes called the children of Israel, the Hebrews, the Israelites, or the Jews. And that is because the story of our faith, of Christianity, starts in exactly the same place as the Jewish history. Now, think back a couple of weeks or months possibly to when Joe did her talk about the narrative of the Bible. She had um, a clothesline across the stage here, and on it she was pinning on um, different things that happened during the narrative of the Bible. Well, the first half of it was dedicated to Jewish history until the point where the story of Jesus begins. And after that, it follows the story of Jesus and the effect of the life of Jesus and what that means for us. And that's where we are today. That's in this overarching kind of narrative, the story of the Bible. What we're looking at today is that point where love came down, where Jesus came, where God came to earth in form of a man. Well, up until this point, the Israelites were living in exactly that same kind of separation that we were when we were born, that separation between God and man. But they, being the chosen people of God, had a different way than we do to try and bridge that gap, to try and fill that void. Now, they had a temple. They had a chief priest who acted as an intermediary between them and God. And they had... They needed to make regular sacrifices to um, kind of wash away their sins, to make themselves clean before God. They lived a life of rules, sometimes called the law, a life of sacrifices. It was often a life of oppression, wilderness, both literally and metaphorically, and exile. But one of the biggest promises God gave to them was that of a Messiah. The God-given gift would bring them out of exile, would bring them out of the wilderness, and would restore that personal relationship with God. And the Israelites were dearly longing for the Messiah to come. They were looking for him. They were actively trying to pursue the Messiah. Then in the first century AD, Uh, While the Jews were being oppressed by the Roman Empire, God sent his son, Jesus. He was the long-awaited Messiah. Our Old Testament, or the Hebrew Tanakh, loves a prophecy. There are multiple books categorized as minor and major prophets. Um, But above all, they loved a prophecy about the Messiah. You know... It's actually quite difficult to work out just how many prophecies there are for the Messiah because some of them aren't as obvious as others. But there is a biblical scholar called J. Barton Payne who insists there are as many as 574 prophetic verses in the Old Testament that are dedicated to the Messiah. That's a lot. I haven't personally counted them, but that is a lot. Well, despite all of these prophecies and 
and an expectation of the Messiah coming, the Hebrews didn't actually accept Jesus as their Messiah, despite fulfilling some of the most obvious of these prophecies. Instead of being embraced as the Messiah that he was, Jesus was crucified. Now, this crucifixion wasn't some tragic miscarriage of justice, although in some ways it was. This crucifixion wasn't a, a, just a horrible event that we regret and move on from. This crucifixion wasn't even against the will of Jesus. You see, Jesus, he was despised, rejected, and forsaken by his own people. That's one of those prophecies from Isaiah. He was put to death on a cross willingly. He chose to do it. This this was all prophesied about too. I mentioned earlier about Isaiah, but if you read Isaiah chapter 53, and even parts of our reading from 1 Corinthians, you will, uh, Isaiah 53, you'll be able to read all about the prophecy of Jesus. But then 1 Corinthians 15, you'll hear Paul saying quite a lot according to the scriptures. He's highlighting how much of what Jesus did was foretold, was prophesied. This was all meant to happen. Jesus came into the world and he lived a human life so that he could physically die, take our punishment on himself. He knew he was going to die, but he did it anyway for you and me. Now you see, Jesus, well, he was sinless. So this sinless self-sacrifice of Jesus is the only way to restore our relationship with God. He took our sin on him, died our death, and rose again in victory over death and hell. Death is defeated. Our sins are defeated and forgiven if we choose the forgiveness that God offers us. All we have to do, and it is this simple, is accept God's forgiveness and commit to living our lives for him and boom. That empty gap, that void, that thing we struggle to fill is filled with the unconditional love of God. Now you've heard me say love a lot. (laughs) Um, That is partly because we're talking about love, but that is also because the English language only has one word for love. If I'm honest, I don't think that's enough. Because, you know, thankfully, a lot of other people agree with me, including most of the writers of the New Testament, because they used more than one word for love. But also, thankfully, so does Andy Ollerton, who wrote the, the, the book that we're following on at the minute, the, uh, the Bible, a story that makes sense of life. He points out the complications with just one word for love. Well, for me, I think the one word for love just isn't enough, because without structuring our whole sentences around it or jumping through some linguistic loopholes, how can we tell the difference between God's love and our love for each other? How do we tell the difference between my love for my daughters and my love for pizza? We use the same word, but they're very different things. Now, if you've been around churches, 
for a long time, which some of you have, um, you will have heard, probably heard a sermon or two on love. And there's every chance you've probably heard some of the words that I'm about to introduce to you. You see, the books of the New Testament were written in Greek. It was a type of Greek called Koine Greek. But unless you're really into Greek or Roman literature from 2,000 years ago, you won't have a clue how to read it. Modern, people who speak modern Greek can't pick it up that easily because it is so different. But anyway, these New Testament authors who wrote in this Koine Greek had lots of different words for love. There's eros, which is used for lust, for passion, for romantic love. And it's got this selfish undertone. And it's actually the word where we get our English word um, erotic from. So it's a bit complicated having that with romantic love at the same time. Now there's philia, which is the love between friends. Or storgi, which is the love of family. Then there's ludus, which is like a flirtatious, playful, but shallow love. Then there's pragma, which is long-lasting and loyal love, which isn't always romantic, so we can describe my lifelong love of pizza as pragma, and my love for my daughters as storgi. You see? So you can use one word instead of structuring a whole sentence. It's probably the one thing the Greeks got right. So there's actually loads more, but the only one you really need to know about, you can figure out all the ones I've just told you if you really want, but the only one you really need to know about is a word called agape. Now, agape is unconditional, selfless, and sacrificial love. It's a love that can never be broken. The thing about all those other Greek words for love is that they actually all have some form of selfish undertone. And all of them can be broken. And this is where the hurt we talked about earlier comes in. When that love is broken, pain comes in. Because human love hurts because it is selfish and it is fragile. Now, I don't know if you guys have heard anyone talking about deal breakers before. A deal breaker is when when you're talking about love and relationships, is when something happens or a person does something that makes them no longer worthy of your love. Now, I was friends with a guy in uni who had this potential deal-breaker that if a person he was into didn't love the band Queen, he'd immediately stop seeing them. That's quite a shallow deal-breaker. Um, but they're actually... I'll wager that we all have some form of deal-breakers in our relationships. We may not have really thought about them, but we do have them. Some of them will be sensible. For example, you know, a breakdown of trust in a marriage or infidelity within a marriage or manipulation in a friendship, lying. These things can be valid deal breakers for some of us. But the thing about agape, that love, is that there are no deal, deal breakers. No deal breakers whatsoever. And now you've probably guessed it. But what word do you think the writers of the New Testament used when they talked about God's love? Agape. Agape, selfless, sacrificing, unconditional, unbreakable love. Now, as part of my time as an ordinand um, in my study, I've had to learn a bit of this Koine Greek. 
I'm really not very good at it. <laughs> um, but I've tried. I've given it my best. Um, but one of the very first things I've translated was one sentence from, uh, from the Bible. And please excuse my terrible accent, and if for whatever reason, I hopefully wouldn't, my Greek tutor is watching on YouTube, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to butcher this, trans- uh, butcher this pronunciation. So the first uh, line I translated was, Hutos gar agapesen hothios ton kosmon. It all sounds very posh. But it means, for God so loved the world. That's John 3.16. That's one of the most read and quoted verses in the Bible. Now, the word agapesen there, the word, tran- the word translates then into loved. It is the past tense of love. It's using agape. So you can read the sentence rather badly as, for God agaped the world. Or we can paraphrase it to make it work a bit better. God loved the world with a selfless, sacrificing, unconditional, all-encompassing, all-forgiving, unbreakable love. So we know the word for love here is important. But don't forget about the word world. Now, the Greek word used here is cosmon. Like cosmos, it means literally everything in existence. Every one of us. God loves every single person in this room or on Zoom or YouTube. God loves every single one of us with a love that has no deal breakers. A love that doesn't need us to be perfect. You know, it doesn't even need us to love him back. We literally cannot escape the love of God. This agape propelled God to send Jesus, who is God in human form, by the way, to die our death, to take our punishment, and to make us whole, regardless of what we do. Now, we could be the best behaved person in the world. God loves us. We could be the worst person in society with a rap sheet as long as Exeter High Street. God loves us in exactly the same way. The thing about agape is that it really doesn't matter who we are or what we've done or who we've hurt. We all need this agape, this love, this forgiveness. God's love, his agape, is unconditional. It is selfless. It is sacrificing. It is all-encompassing. It is unbreakable, and it is all-forgiving. Now, the author of our reading earlier from 1 Corinthians talks about how unworthy he is and how undeserving he is of the love and forgiveness and grace of God. Well, 1 Corinthians is a letter to the church in Corinth from a man called Paul. Now, you might have heard him called Paul the Apostle or Saint Paul. Paul had this really complicated history, complicated to say the least, because he was a physical abuser. He was a kidnapper. And at the very least, he was complicit with a murder. He allowed a murder to happen, and that's the very least. Paul wasn't a nice guy. He was, in fact, he was quite a horrible bloke. But God's love chased him down and forgave him and turned his life around. I mentioned a minute or two ago, it doesn't really matter if we love God 
back or not, which sounds really weird to us as humans. Because he loves us either way. Jesus died our death and took our punishment whether we believe it or not. So why? Why did Jesus die? Why did God send Jesus? Why did love become a man to die for us, to restore us to that relationship with God? That relationship that we had in the beginning. Right at the very start of this talk, I said that God is chasing us down to show us the love that he has for us. You know, all God wants from us is the relationship that he created us to be able to have with him. We're not worthy of that. But God sent Jesus regardless of how worthy we were so we could have that relationship. Now, if this is the first time you've really heard about God's love like this, and you want to accept the forgiveness that God offers to you through his love, and you want that relationship with God, then in a second I'm going to invite you to to pray a prayer with me. But actually, you know what, if this is not your first time, and you've heard this all before, and you've got that relationship with God, I'm still going to invite you to say the same prayer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you all to receive the love and forgiveness that God is offering you, offering me. So if you want this, I'd encourage you to to maybe close your eyes and put your hand on your heart, your hands out in front of you, and respond. just respond in this way. Then in your heads, or, or rather in your hearts, if that makes sense to you, pray along with me with these words. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, thank you that you love me. I accept your love and your forgiveness. I want to live in a real relationship with you. Come into my heart. I want to live for you. Amen. Now, if that's the first time you've prayed a prayer like that, then amazing. Welcome to the family. And if it is the first time and you've come with someone, then I'll encourage you to tell them because they're going to want to pray with you. And if you've not come with someone, then you can grab me or John or one of the guys in a lanyard. You've got Tim out there on welcome. Um, Just talk to somebody and just tell them because they're going to want to pray with you and just celebrate with you. But you know what? If that wasn't your first time and you've just recommitted your life to God and received his forgiveness again, then just know that God is at work in you. The Holy Spirit is stirring in you. Rest in your forgiveness and in the unconditional love of God. Now we're just gonna we're just gonna pray for a sec. So if you if you if you can, I'd invite you to, to stand with me. I will invite the Holy Spirit. Yes, come Holy Spirit. Father God, we thank you that you love us and that your, your love knows no bounds. You are unstoppable. Lord God, we thank you that no matter what we do, no matter where we place ourselves on a spectrum of good or bad, you love us all the same. And Father, we thank you that you have forgiven us 
And all we have to do is claim it. Amen.